This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, the corporate media claim that Medicare for All is a far-left issue. But how could that be when polls show that supermajorities of Americans are in favor of single-payer? Supporters of political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal believe the legal barriers to his freedom are finally crumbling. And a Jamaican-born scholar says Rastafarians are in the forward ranks of the global movement for black liberation. But first, another meeting between President Trump and other heads of state of NATO countries has ended in discord and confusion. However, Ajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace says the confusion and disarray in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is not necessarily a bad thing. I think for African people, it is a good thing because it's quite clear that as we, as the Black Alliance for Peace said in his statement on NATO, we see that gathering in London as a gathering of a cabal of white supremacist militarists. There's nothing respectable about that formation. It is a formation that has been used quite effectively as a the militarized arm of the Western Alliance. Its activity has gone well beyond the North Atlantic region, and it serves now as a deployment force in every part of the world to extend and expand and deepen military and political control of the Western alliance from Afghanistan to the African continent. So for us, there's no respectability in that meeting, and we condemn those elements in the U.S. state, those elements in the Democratic Party, those elements in the society in general that continue to give legitimacy to a structure that has proven itself to be an enemy, uh, not only to the peoples of the global south, but an enemy to collective humanity. Yes, liberal critics of NATO say that it outlived its usefulness when the Soviet Union fell. But if NATO is in fact part of the U.S. scheme for world domination, it doesn't lose its usefulness until the U.S. mission to dominate the world is complete. Exactly. And people have to be reminded that the original rationale for NATO was supposed to be as a break on the ambitions of the Soviet Union. This bogus argument that the Soviet Union, after the, after the end of the Second World War, might in fact engage in a land invasion of Western Europe. And therefore, it was important to establish this North Atlantic Treaty Organization. But those of us who are able to think and that's subjected to the constant propaganda and the twisted worldviews of the West, 
recognize that NATO was established first, not as a break on the Soviet Union, but as an instrument to rationalize and justify the U.S. military occupation of Western Europe. In fact, to demonstrate that, the, the Warsaw Pact that NATO was supposed to be opposed to was not established until some six years after NATO. So this has always been a bogus instrument, more instrument to be used for U.S. hegemony. And that is why today it is under attack, that its usefulness for Europeans are now starting to be questioned, especially now that under Trump, the U.S. appears to be more aggressive in trying to arm twist the various NATO members into spending more of their GDP on so-called defense. And what that really means, Glenn, and people have to understand this, is that when Trump is gangstering these states to spend more money on defense, that is basically an extortion scheme because the money that will be expended will be for purchasing U.S. arms. So he's basically playing front man for the U.S. military industrial complex. And the Europeans quite naturally are beginning to respond negatively to these demands to the extent that even Macron, uh, the president of France, uh, has been floating the idea of an independent military formation from NATO, a European army, if you will, that will be under the control of Europe, but primarily France and Germany, but primarily France, as a counter to the influence of the U.S., uh, influence that they believe now is unpredictable and unsteady because of the leadership of the Trump administration, but also what they perceive to be the incoherent leadership and policies of the U.S. administrations in general. And an independent European military might also be a clear and present danger to the previously colonized, now neo-colonized world, especially with France in the lead. Exactly. And one of the interesting twists that the bourgeois press in the U.S. have not dealt with is that not only did Macron question the psychological fitness of NATO, but Macron said that Western hegemony was at an end. And in the next breath, talked about the absolute necessity for reconciling Western Europe and Russia. And so if he is arguing for a European army on the one hand, that one would assume based on the sort of popular understanding of why you have a European army, that it would be in opposition to some force. And the only force it could be in opposition to would be the Russians. But if he is asking and calling for a closer collaboration and cooperation with Russia, then what would this European force be used for? Well, the quite obvious answer is this European army would be used as part of the desperate attempt on the part of Western capitalists, the Western colonial capitalist system, to maintain its hegemony through the use of force. So this army would be targeting those of us in the global south and those of us who are colonized. That is the objective of a European army. And it's quite interesting that in his call to reconcile with Russia, that is Macron, uh, we didn't hear from the Democrats a critique 
of him as being a Russian asset, a Putin puppet. I mean, when they criticize a right winger like Mitch McConnell as Moscow Mitch, it's quite interesting that uh, we didn't hear the refrain of a, a Moscow uh, Macron coming from the Democratic Party. Now, in 2011, NATO had one of its biggest operations to date, and that was the invasion, the bombing of Libya, followed by a vast reinforcement of AFRICOM, the U.S. military command in Africa. Exactly. And what people have to understand is that there is a strategic integration between the U.S. Africa Command, uh, AFRICOM, and NATO. And we see that there's been an almost simultaneous aggressive expansion of both AFRICOM and NATO. And so for those black folks who are not understanding that we have to perceive the world through our own lenses and identify our own objective independent uh, interests, they don't seem to understand that when they give support to the right-wing neoliberal Democrats who are criticizing Trump because he doesn't appear to be as supportive of NATO as they think he should be, or when Hillary Clinton talks about NATO being one of the most successful and enduring coalitions on the planet, then they are in fact supporting uh, positions that are counter to the positions of their own people, to the interests of their own people. And they are in fact supporting a justification for more militarism, both abroad and indirectly domestically, because it's quite clear that, again, the Western forces have determined that because of the legitimation crisis that they, that they cannot solve ideologically, they are more and more dependent on the use of force, both externally and in terms of globally, but also domestically. And that's one reason why we see the strengthening of the uh, national security state. So these things are interconnected, and that is the task that black radicals have to embrace and understand that we've got to be able to make those connections. And as we engage in this struggle for consciousness, if you will, so that people understand that you cannot just look at what is unfolding politically within the U.S., and then understand how that is connected to the crisis of the world colonial capitalist system. And understand that what we are dealing with in the U.S. is just the national expressions of that crisis. And that if we are talking about trying to address our issues in the U.S., we've got to understand how those issues are structurally, structurally connected to the global colonial capitalist system. And that if we want to realize our full human rights in the U.S., we've got to understand that this global capitalist system has to be defeated. Yes, when the United States, as it has since at least 2001, declares that it has enemies all over the world, then any expression of solidarity by black Americans with folks who are oppressed elsewhere in the world immediately makes black folks here national security problems. Exactly. And that's why they don't want us to make those connections. They don't want us to understand that it is not in our interest to support U.S. policies in places like Venezuela. 
They don't want us to identify with the rebellion of African people in Haiti against a U.S. imposed state. They don't want us to understand the balance of forces uh, issue in Latin America with the coup in Bolivia and the fact that uh, not only are the indigenous people who are being murdered in Bolivia, but to the surprise of some, there are black people who are being murdered in Bolivia also. We are going to deliver a, we meaning the Black Alliance for Peace, a letter to the Congressional Black Caucus that we received from a black member of the MAS movement, MAS party, the movement for socialism in Bolivia, who is calling on the Congressional Black Caucus to take a more resolute stand against the coup in Bolivia. So all of these issues are interconnected. They don't, they don't want us to make those connections. They want us to keep our focus just on the U.S., where one can be a so-called progressive in the U.S. and still support uh, U.S. imperialism. But for us, we know that to have that kind of limited focus undermines not only our interests, but it helps to prop up the system that is responsible for our ongoing suffering. Now, Hank Johnson, the black congressman from Atlanta, Georgia, was one of those very few congresspeople that wrote a letter expressing concern for what the U.S. seems to have approved of in Bolivia. But the vast majority of the Congressional Black Caucus has not been opposed to U.S. policy in Latin America or specifically Bolivia. Exactly. You see the massive numbers of people that signed on to his letter, which, of course, were only a few. And this is another example of the failure of this contemporary crop of members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Even a few decades ago, you know, even though we could not objectively say that the uh, Congressional Black Caucus was a, a radical formation, there were elements in it that took principal positions against U.S. imperialist policies. Today, those elements are almost completely absent in this current Congressional Black Caucus. These folks seem not to have much of a concern with U.S. foreign policies, and when they do, they seem to be in support of every adventure that the U.S. state is engaged in. You know, it wasn't that long ago that the Congressional Black Caucus took a very important position on Haiti, for example, and putting pressure on the U.S. state to reverse its interventions into Haiti, to reinstall Aristide, even though it was a reinstallment that had its hands tied behind its back also. But even those kinds of moves are not being made by this current crop of representatives. And one reason for that, Glenn is that it is a reflection of the weaknesses of our movement. See, there's no accountability. So therefore, you can engage in reactionary behavior, support reactionary policies with no consequences because our movement is weak. We are not in a place to put pressure on these folks to call them out when they clearly collaborate with interests that are opposed to our interests. So just because the Congressional Black Caucus seems to at least passively support U.S. imperial aggressions around the world doesn't mean that that is the stance taken by most black people. And even though we saw a shift in opinion 
among black people, more supportive of the U.S. state during the Obama administration, where, of course, the, we've talked about this over and over again, where the Obama administration and the presence of Obama in the White House gave a veneer of legitimacy to the criminality of the U.S. state. There's still a core of people who still question policies, who are not in support of blanket and militarism, who can be appealed to once they understand the consequences of U.S. policies on people of color and working class people and poor people abroad, that they will respond positively. But, you know, those appeals are not being made. Therefore, that position and those voices are almost silent because no one is appealing to those forces and they are not able to penetrate the noise of pro-imperialist uh, policies that uh, predominate in the corporate press and in the body politics. So, you know, our job is to try to connect up with those forces and to amplify that position so people understand that there's still a core of opposition, not only among African people in the U.S., but polls have indicated that a majority of the people in this country are opposed to uh, ongoing, open-ended militarism and war. But you would think from the policies, positions taken by their representatives, that that wouldn't be the case. But that is, again, another one of the examples of the contradictions between the representatives in Congress, bought and paid for by the corporations and the interests of the people. It, it is another empirical piece of evidence, if you will, that was verified in 2014 empirically. They said that the U.S. is, in fact, an oligarchy as opposed to a democracy because it was pointed out by Benjamin Page and Martin Gillis in their groundbreaking report that there is this disparity between where the public is on these various issues and the stance taken by their representatives in Congress. And, in fact, over and over again, it is the interest of the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, that is advanced in Congress in opposition to where the U.S. public is. So this is what we have to deal with in terms of trying to break through this control that they have over the line, the channels of communication, to build movements so that those voices of opposition, those voices uh, that are not in alignment with U.S. imperialism can be heard and we can begin to join the rest of the world in a rebellion against these reactionary forces. That was Sajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace. Polls show that Medicare for All continues to garner support from huge majorities of Democrats and even about half of Republicans. The future of health care in the United States is also a multi-trillion dollar economic issue. We asked Kevin Zeiss of Popular Resistance if the corporations that profit from privatized health care are panicking at the growing popularity of Medicare for All. Well, when an issue gets to the point where it has national consensus and Medicare for All not only has 85% support among Democrats, but 52% are Republicans and the 70% or so among independents. So it's reached a national consensus phase. The people who profit from the current system will do all they can to stop it. And Buttigieg is getting a lot of money from the insurance and pharmaceutical industry, and 
His Medicare for those who want it is really Medicare for some. It's also known as a public option, which would really not solve the health care crisis or confront the insurance industry. Medicare for some, a public option, just really adds another layer of complexity to an already too complex system. We don't need another insurance. We need to get rid of insurance and have one insurance, and that's a publicly funded insurance, a Medicare for all. Warren is more complicated. She has said a lot of good things about Medicare for All in the debates. She has been a co-sponsor of Sanders' bill, which is a flawed bill, by the way, but still the best in the Senate. So she has been much more carefully threading the needle to please Medicare for All supporters. But then she came out with this very bizarre proposal, which was a two-step, essentially putting in place improvements to the ACA, which is a waste of time because the ACA is fundamentally flawed. It's based on the insurance model, and that's the problem with it. If you base it on the insurance model, it will be an unaffordable system that does not cover everyone. So she wants to first improve the ACA, and second, put in place Medicare for all a few years later. The problem is, once a president's in office, after that second year, there will be a boomerang against the president. It always happens. And so she'll be much weaker three years later and be unable to pass Medicare for all. So the real approach is to put in place Medicare for all. Now, one of the flaws of Sanders' bill is that he has a multi-year process of passing Medicare for all, then transitioning to put it in place. There's no need for that. We put in place Medicare in 1965 without computers and did it in one year. It was done on index cards. And they did it in one year. We could easily transform to uh, Medicare for all within one year. There's no need for a long delay. That's one of the serious flaws in Sanders' bill. You know, the best bill certainly is the House bill. Represent Jayapal, more than 100-plus members of the House have co-sponsored it. And it is the best of the bills out there. Our hope is that Sanders will improve his bill, not just on the long-term transition, but also to make sure all long-term care is covered. Understand this bill, uh, if long-term care is not completely covered, people who get long-term care, they have to go back to the Medicaid system, which requires them to become paupers in order to get long-term care. That's not acceptable. The other flaw in Sanders' bill that's very important is he does not confront the for-profit hospitals. And the way you confront them is by putting in place a global budget. So every hospital gets a budget for the year, and that is how they fund themselves. And that controls their costs. He doesn't do that. He puts in place programs, managed care type programs that are just a loophole for the insurance industry. So a lot of work needs to be done. The good news is that the Medicare for All movement is seeing this and is educated. You saw Elizabeth Warren's popularity drop like a rock once she came out with that absurd plan. It showed to everyone she can't be trusted. And if you look at her polling, her drop in popularity coincides with coming out with her fraudulent Medicare for all, her two-step bill, uh, her fraudulent Medicare for all bill. And that really uh, has been like a rock on her campaign and she's disappearing quickly. And who knows how she'll do by the time he gets to Iowa. In the end, this will probably help Bernie Sanders in Iowa. And if he does well in Iowa, he'll also beat her in New Hampshire. Faced with a national consensus for Medicare for all, you'd think that insurance stocks and, to a lesser degree, pharmaceutical stocks would be plummeting on the stock exchange. Well, they've had, they've got, had their ups and downs, depending on what the current news is. And I think that they see that the uh, insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry are fighting very aggressively to keep the status quo in place. They, they are spending millions of dollars 
They've organized uh, various front groups to advocate for public option or Medicare for some and to influence people like uh, Warren. They're putting out all sorts of deceptions in the media that are trying to fool people. So I think the uh, people investing in the insurance industry understand its resiliency, understand that it has fought this battle for years successfully, and winning this battle is not going to be easy is going to require a very educated and aggressive movement. And we do have that. But, you know, we're dwarfed in money by the uh, insurance industry, pharmaceutical and the for-profit hospitals and uh, medical device makers. So there's a lot of money in the status quo. And that money is being used aggressively to stop Medicare for all. Well, yes, there is a lot of money in the status quo. The insurance industry makes up a big chunk of finance capital. You would think that that chunk and the rest of finance capital would see beating Medicare for all as almost an existential issue. That's a really good description because the great thing about the Medicare for all issue is it transitions a lot of other sub-issues. The big one being uh, public programs versus private programs. We've had this privatization rush going on in the United States for decades, especially since Carter and Reagan, Clinton and Obama. They've all been pushing privatization of everything. Going to Medicare for All reverses that trend and puts us all into a public program where we're all together as a society. That's a very major psychological change. The other major change that comes from winning Medicare for All is we are beating the moneyed interests. You're right. The healthcare issue is gigantic. It, healthcare itself is one fifth of the GDP. That's a massive trillions of dollars in the GDP. And that's buttressed by the investor class and the banks that are all supporting Medicare for all. And of course, the media is tied in with the insurance industry. If you look at their boards of directors, their advertising, you'll see the media. So when we take on this issue, we are taking on the system. And that's why it's such an important battle. And if, if it's a battle we win, we can then use that to show that, in fact, public programs work because it will work fantastically. There's no question. It will save money. It will cover everybody and provide better health care. There's no question about the result. And so we'll have this great example. Then we can move to other uh, public services that are desperately needed on a whole series of fronts, including energy. I mean, we're going through this climate crisis. It's critical we get control of the energy system, and that's going to require both federal and local control of energy sources. So public administration of energy is going to be key. Transit systems are going to be, have to be invested in as a public service, not as a private enterprise. And so if we win Medicare for all, we are shifting things in a very important direction. So that's why it's so important that people understand the centrality of this Medicare for all. That's why we've created a campaign Health Over Profit for Everyone, healthoverprofit.org, is our Medicare for All campaign at Popular Resistance. We've been doing this for years. Margaret Stop Margaret Flowers, my co-director at Popular Resistance, stopped practicing medicine after practicing for 17 years just to work on Medicare for All. So we see the centrality of this issue as critical, not just for health care, but critical to how we as a society treat each other. Yes, but you're talking about an all-out assault on the austerity regime itself. And late-stage capitalists all over the world have no other policy but austerity, a race to the bottom. And they're afraid because they see, well, look what's happening in Latin America. Look what's happening in France. There are protests all over the world against neoliberal capitalism, which is austerity at its centerpiece. And they see the pink tide rising again 
in Latin America. The U.S. is fighting back aggressively with oligarchs and with the National Endowment for Democracy and the regime change efforts. But the pink tide is rising there. And look what's happening in France, just this massive general strike. These are all challenging neoliberalism. These issues are centered in the United States around the issue of Medicare for all, because that is a neoliberal function in the United States where we have tens of thousands of people dying every year just because they don't have health insurance. And 100,000 plus people who would not have died if they lived in a country like the UK with the National Health Service or France with its single-payer system. Studies show we have more than 100,000 deaths a year that could be prevented if we didn't have this neoliberal, privatized healthcare system. Americans used to be pretty ignorant about the kind of health care people elsewhere in the world got, but that's changing. And most Americans now know that they get the short end of the health care stick globally. Yeah, that's so true. You know, I remember in the old days when Obama was pushing his fraudulent Affordable Care Act, the, the argument was that the U.S. has the best health care system in the world. We have to protect it. Well, that was a falsehood then and it's a falsehood now. Our lifespans in the United States have been shrinking for the last three years. They had leveled off before that. Prior to that, we were uh, on the rise. But we are now shrinking in lifespans. And one of the reasons for that is because of our health care system. The health care system does not provide adequate health care. And once you put in place a single-payer system, it not only changes how you get health when you get ill, it also changes how the government responds to health threats. For example, the idea of Monsanto spraying all our food with herbicides. And if we're paying for the health care as a society, we're going to say that, that that's unacceptable because it risks our health. Uh, you know, and on issue after issue, you can see how we could prevent adverse health consequences if we put in place a single-payer system because we don't have the best health care system in the world. We have low into the 30s as far as ranking goes. We're the most expensive. We don't cover everybody. We provide poor health care. That was Kevin Zeese of Popular Resistance, speaking from Baltimore. Supporters of Mumia Abu-Jamal rallied in a number of cities last week as part of a push to finally free the nation's best-known political prisoner. Lynn Washington is a legal scholar who has closely followed Abu-Jamal's case. He took part in a teach-in in New York City. So let me just get you right up to where Mumi is now in terms of his appeals. In Pennsylvania law, there's a thing called the Code of Judicial Conduct. And that is a set of rules that say how judges are supposed to operate. And one of the provisions says that a judge must be impartial, but also give the appearance of impartiality. So if you're a racist, if you say that you're going to help the prosecution fry the black man, they use a different word, that's not being impartial, that's not giving the appearance of impartiality. Another provision of that code says that if you are an employee of a government agency and you become a judge, if you know facts about the case in front of you, you have to get off the case. Cut and dry, period, no nuance. You don't have to go to the Harvard Law School to figure out what it says. It says just that. So, in 1981, there was a, a person, a prosecutor, who worked in the district attorney's office, a guy named Ron Castile. Mumia's case was the case of the year. 
So everybody, police, citizens, prosecutors, judges, they knew about the case. Back to Ron Castile. Ron Castile becomes the DA in Philadelphia in 1985. He was elected months after police dropped a bomb on move and burned down a house and killed five kids and six adults. After Ron Castile gets elected to the district attorney's office, they fight Mumia's appeal. Mumia should not get an appeal. He should stay on death row. We should kill him right now. Oh, we should kill him yesterday. Oh, let me write a letter to the governor and saying, I support the death penalty, particularly if it's applied to cop killers. Then Ron Castile runs for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court because it's an elected court. He gets the support of the Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police, the police union, the main group seeking to then to have Abu Jamal executed. While serving on the court in 1990s, Mumia's appeal from 95 comes out and goes to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. Mumia's people say, hey, get this guy off the case because it gives the appearance of impropriety. It's unfair. And like I told you about that provision in the judicial code, if you're a part of a government agency, which is a DA, and you know something about the case, which a DA would, then you got to get off the case. Castile said, no, I'm not getting off the case because I could be fair. Do you think he could be fair? You don't have to answer because I know the answer. It's no. He can't be fair. Not only did he say no, he wrote an opinion, a long opinion saying why he wasn't getting off the case. And one of the reasons why he said he wasn't getting off the case, he said, I didn't know anything about this case. Now, he campaigns as a hands-on manager. So when they said, okay, well, Mr. Castillo, you signed all these papers saying that he's supposed to be guilty in, in executing. So he says, oh, no, 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 I just signed my name to it, but I didn't know what was in the papers. Now, this, this is what masquerades as fair justice. So let's flash forward almost 20 years. Mumia's on death row. So a case comes before the U.S. Supreme Court, and it involves a guy named Ron Castile. And what was the case? A murder case, a death penalty case out of Philadelphia, where Ron Castile was the DA, and he fought to get the guy executed. And then as a member of the Supreme Court, he voted to uphold it. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, nah, no, this is flat wrong. You can't do this. And this is why Mumia is now appealing, based on that U.S. Supreme Court ruling. But the problem with the Mumia case is not the evidence or even the law on his side. The problem is the courts don't follow the law. If the courts had followed the law, Mumia would have been out of prison when the Pennsylvania Supreme Court first ruled against him in 1989, because the law was on his side. In 95, the law was on his side when he was doing the appeals. And during that hearing, the trial judge, who was a bigot during his trial in 1982, presided over the case. And to make a long story short, the then governor of the state, because they were opening Mumia's mail illegally and reading it, they knew what was going on the day or a few days before they filed for the appeal, the governor issues a death warrant 
which was illegal because you can't issue a death warrant until all of the appeals are done. So the judge, the bigger the judge, who they said get off the case, and he says, I'm going to stay on the case, he says, well, I'm going to rush the appeal hearing because we have to get the appeal hearing done before he's executed. What? You have an appeal hearing to see if he's going to be adjudicated innocent or guilty. What are you talking about? you got to get this done before he gets executed. But this is the type of stuff that has happened all along in this case. So now... Now, we're waiting to see what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is going to rule, whether they're going to allow Mumias to have his appeal in the Supreme Court or in the Superior Court. And again, if these judges ever follow the law, Mumias out immediately. But they don't follow the law. That was legal scholar Lynn Washington at a teach-in for Mumia Abu-Jamal. For most Americans, Rastafarians are associated with music and marijuana. But Dave Dunkley, a professor of Black Studies at the University of Missouri, says Rastas played a key role in the emergence of a global Black liberation movement. Dr. Dunkley has authored a number of books on the subject, and he wrote a recent article about the man who's credited with founding the Rastafarian movement, Leonard Percival Howell. My work on Rastafari focuses on its political agency, as I call it. It struggles against colonialism in the African diaspora. And the spirituality uh, component of Rastafari, in my view, was part of a package that was geared towards decolonizing black space in the diaspora as well as as well as in Africa, because we must remember that much of black Africa was also colonized at the time Rastafari emerged, which was the early 1930s. Leonard Howell is widely considered as the first person to publicly preach the doctrine and political ideology of Rastafari. There are actually four known founders of the movement, but Howell is widely seen as the first person to really get going in Jamaica after he returns from the United States. I should tell you a bit of his background. He was born in Jamaica, in Clarendon, one of the rural parishes. He was born into a peasant family, and he then migrates to the United States, where he ends up in Harlem in the 1920s after served working on some British naval vessels. While in Harlem, he comes under the influence of the Harlem Renaissance as well, and most significantly, Marcus Garvey and George Padmore. So he is exposed to black nationalism as well as black socialism during the 1920s. And he's also, via the the Harlem Renaissance, exposed to the idea that black culture is worth something and that black history and culture can be brought together to push um, the, the political agenda of black liberation through the African diaspora. So he's in Harlem for all of the 20s and in 1930, 
In December of 1932, he ends up back in Jamaica. He then starts, immediately starts preaching the idea that Haile Selassie is the spiritual leader of the black world and this the crowning was a resurgence of the black liberation struggle. And he's then able to grow the Rastafari movement from that point. He links up with some of the other recognized or known founders, particularly Joseph Hibbert and Robert Hines. And in fact, Robert Hines himself becomes a lieutenant of Howell. Somebody Howell asked to watch over the movement in Kingston because as early as January 1933, he's being surveilled by the British colonial police in Jamaica. Now, you say that Mr. Howell had an investment in psychological repatriation to Africa as opposed to a physical repatriation. What is a psychological repatriation? And is that really just another way of another kind of escapism? Well, first of all, the discussion about repatriation and Rastafari is, is very controversial. Rastafari was always interested in repatriation, but Howell felt that repatriation could take place without physical relocation. In other words, it was not necessary to physically migrate to Africa, to be connected to Africa. And by Africa, he was thinking primarily about Ethiopia because of the leadership symbolic leadership that was represented by the emperor of Ethiopia. So the important role of repatriation for him was as a way to encourage black solidarity around Africanness, the sense of African redemption and the African future beyond colonialism. So he used repatriation as a way to bring the diaspora together in the struggle to decolonize black space in the diaspora, starting with Jamaica, where they were at the time. I think, though, that the confusion arises because the colonial government decided to use repatriation to promote the idea that they were escapists. And that idea of escapism becomes a sort of way in which they can then discount the movement as outlandish, as far-fetched, indeed as a cult, which is the term that they often use. And so repatriation in the hands of the colonial system becomes a weapon of suppression. But Howell was very clear, and I believe in the internal correspondence of the colonial government that I looked at, they also recognized that the intention of the Rastafari under Howell was to take control of Jamaica from the colonial government. How important were the Rastafarians to the eventual, in the 1960s, decolonization of Jamaica? I think they were very important because, first of all, by 1940, Marcus Garvey, who had returned to Jamaica and was trying to lead the UNIA from Jamaica, by 1940, Marcus Garvey had already left the country. He was in the, um, Britain and he died. 
And Rastafari was seen as the inheritor of all of that activism that the Garvey movement had developed in Jamaica and indeed around the diaspora. So Rastafari becomes a critical link to not just the Ethiopianism, the tradition of Ethiopianism in the African diaspora, but to the black nationalism of Marcus Garvey. And that the Rastafari struggle against colonialism continued. In fact, in the 1950s, in 1956, and then again in 1958, the colonial police raided the community, the independent black community that Howell had established. It was called Pinnacle, as a way to finally, to finally suppress them, to keep them from growing any further. And it is no coincidence in my mind that it was as recent as 1962 that Jamaica then becomes an independent nation under the, the British Westminster system of government rather than the sort of black nationalism that Rastafari had been promoted. So I think that Rastafari was growing in the 1950s. Because there were also attempts by the mainstream political parties, the Creole nationalists, as I call them, to bring Rastafari into the fold, into their fold. But unable to do that, the alternative was to suppress them. And Howell and his group were not the only ones who faced suppression during this time. All of the Rastafari groups. There was another prominent individual during the 1950s who was actually tried for treason, and his name was Claudius Henry. Yes, and that brings us to the question of how have post-colonial, independence-era Jamaican governments dealt with the Rastas? I think that there has been, well, since very early in the independence period, in the 1960s, there were still attempts being made to suppress the Rastafari movement. We had in the early 1960s the infamous Coral Gardens massacre, where the prime minister at the time, Alexander Bustamante, ordered the police to go and arrest every single Rastafari member in the island. And that was in response to an allegation that two Rastafari men were involved in an arson incident in western Jamaica. Two Rastafarians. And from that that incident, and there is still a lot of controversy over whether they actually did commit the arson. But with that said, that became an excuse to send the security forces to arrest. And there are people, Rastafari, men and women who are alive, who went through that and they still have the stories of the how the police ill-treated them. So coming out of the 1960s, Rastafari was still being suppressed by the post-colonial governments in Jamaica. In the 1970s, however, with the rise of democratic socialism under Michael Manley, there was an attempt made to have better relationships with Rastafari. And Michael Manley himself recognized that Rastafari was very critical to the building of black consciousness or African consciousness in Jamaica. So he was very interested in using Rastafari for that purpose. That's when Rastafari's symbols became so prominent in Jamaica, the music, the dress, the cuisine, dietary habits, and so on. All of that gained a 
good deal of prominence during the 1960s. With the ending of that period, the Manly period in 1980, the government changed and Rastafari, there was less of an interest in Rastafari as a, a part of Jamaican culture. And there were instances where there was the same kind of suppression by the police, this time through the use of the anti-marijuana legislation in the country. Now, in the present period, I think that there has been attempts, significant attempts made by the government to acknowledge the importance of Rastafari, not just to the culture of the country, but to the political consciousness of Jamaicans. After all, when you hear the name of Jamaica, arguably the first thing that comes to mind is Rastafari, or more specifically, Bob Marley. And the governments now do recognize that this is not a movement they can push by the wayside. So currently there is a good deal of, I would say, attempt being made to encourage good relations between the Rastafari and the Jamaican government. And in fact, at least culturally speaking, Rastafarians are represented well, throughout the African diaspora. Yes, they are, not just the African diaspora. In fact, as early as 1980, the mid-1980s, some Rastafari women were commenting that given the preponderance of Rastafari as a belief system in white countries, in um, Europe, um, in, in Britain, in North America, it would appear, their comment was that it would appear that there were going to be more white Rastafari than there were black Rastafari, <laughs> which is a good in the sense that it shows that Rastafari has always promoted this idea of the solidarity of people around the sense that Africa is the cradle of human civilization. And in spite of where you are, you owe Africa your presence in this world. But you're right. Rastafari has spread right around the world. It's very prominent in, um, in, in the African diaspora. In fact, South Africa has the largest number of Rastafari people on record surpass in Jamaica now, which is kind of funny because the country that produced Rastafari has less practicing Rastafari than other parts of the African diaspora. The late Ethiopian emperor, Haile Selassie, was seen by Rastas as the return of the Messiah. But yes. back in the 1970s, I lived in a huge building in Washington, D.C. that was full of Ethiopians who were glad to see Haile Selassie go. How did the overthrow of Selassie impact the Rastafarian movement? Well, the Rastafari did not see the overthrow as a, an indictment of Selassie's divinity. They saw it in the same way as the Christian community sees the crucifixion of Jesus the Christ. So for Rastafari, the overthrow of Selassie was something that was not surprising given the, the, the mindset of human beings. 
it has not shaken their belief that Selassie was the promised return of the Messiah. But what you must understand is that Rastafari belief system and Rastafari's political ideology are connected in the sense that Selassie himself is a symbol of black greatness, a symbol of black excellence, a symbol that black civilization has produced not just royalty, but but excellence and divinity, and that blacks can trace their lineage back to the Christ, to Solomon, David, and so on. So the symbolic importance of Selassie has never has never wavered for Rastafari, but that has not in any way prevented them from pursuing their political agenda to build a more just world around socialistic ideals. How did Rastafarians become so closely associated with marijuana? Well, marijuana. <laughs> You know, uh, people. First of all, this is a this. Um, this is the first question that people always ask about Rastafari, the marijuana question. Well, you know, based on what's going on now, I think everyone, um, at least many many people, if not most, recognize that marijuana has significant medicinal value, and that the idea of marijuana being a narcotic is a fairly recent invention. It was in the 1930s that the United States decided to ban marijuana and, and, and label it as a narcotic. Before that, it was sold, it was traded by the famous Virginia company in Jamestown. And marijuana products, particularly hemp, were used to make textiles, to make rope, to make masks, and used for various ailments. So marijuana's criminalization, which is parks the questions about Rasta's association with it are very recent developments, and they are developments that are connected to this attempt, at least in Jamaica, to the attempt to suppress Rastafari as well. Because with marijuana being illegal, then it becomes a pretext to arrest and incarcerate Rastafari members. For Rastafari itself, marijuana has always been seen as a sacrament. In other words, if you are a Christian, the sacraments are the blood and body of Christ, and people partake of those things symbolically with drinking the wine or the grape juice and breaking and eating the bread on Sunday. So for Rastafari, marijuana is seen in a similar light, but it is also used in, in, for, as a medicine, and it is also used for culinary purposes to, 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 to um, keep the body healthy. So it's critical in their spiritual life. It's critical as part of their religion, but it's also important to maintain a healthy lifestyle. And it's also important for cooking purposes. So Rastafari has never been shy about making it known that marijuana is of tremendous value to human beings. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's 
www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. 